Father, we are so thankful for your love for us. We are so thankful for your Son whom you sent. Father, we're thankful that you revealed your wonderful truth in your word concerning Jesus. And Father, I pray as we look into your word this morning that you would prepare our hearts, that uh, we would examine ourselves, we'd be right before you, and we'd be ready to receive your word and allow it to do its work in us by your Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time and we commit it to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's quite amazing that it's two weeks until Christmas Eve and obviously Christmas Day, the next day, uh, how time flies. It's Christmas again. And with that in mind, why do we celebrate Christmas? I think most of us understand that. I think uh, for many in our country, uh, they would uh, see it as a time of food and family and friends and time to shop and get gifts or whatever it might be. Uh, for kids, a time to get gifts, I think, for some, right? <laughs> for all of them, probably, right? Um, but really, why do we celebrate Christmas? Well, our culture is shifting uh, slowly to an Eastern culture. We see that. But yet, most people in our country understand that Christmas is about Jesus, about a babe being born. But unfortunately, that's as far as it goes for many people. They'll, they understand intellectually the reason why uh, Christmas And yet, uh, many do not understand the true reason why we celebrate Christmas. Now, with this in mind, today I believe we're going to see today that Christmas is much more than just a birth. It It includes a birth, but the reason for the birth. So with that in mind, let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 10, and actually... It says 13 on there, but we'll probably get up only really thoroughly through 9 or 10, we'll see today. 9 for sure, well, Lord willing, for sure. <laughs> but uh, the latter portion will go through kind of quickly. Hebrews chapter 2, and I want to share some of the context of the book of Hebrews. Uh, the author is unknown, but uh, we do know that God brought forth his word, that men moved by the Spirit spoke from God, so we know it's God's word. And it was written exclusively to Jews. They were, they were Hebrews who had identified with Christ. Now, within that group, they were suffering for the gospel, and they were in need of endurance. But yet, even within that group, there were those who had identified as believers, but were not believers yet. And they were being, as we'll see in this book, warned to not turn away from the only thing or the only one who could save them, that is Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, it's written sometime between 33 and 70 A.D., obviously after the ascension of Jesus Christ, but before uh, Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple sacrifices ceased. And it was not written to prove that uh, Judaism is superior, or Christianity is superior to Judaism. That's not at all what it was written for. It was written to prove that Christ and his new covenant is superior to the old covenant, which was a type and shadow of what was to come. And within this, this word of exhortation, chapter 13 says, it has a focus on Jesus Christ with with warnings threaded through uh, this book. And so the main theme we saw actually last week, that God, having spoken to us in many portions, in many ways, has now spoken to us through his Son. He has spoken to us through his Son. All that he wants us to know about him has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we better listen to him. Now, within this book, the author consistently proves that Jesus Christ is superior. First of all, that he's superior to angels, the, the messengers of the Old Covenant. Then that Christ is superior to Moses, the apostle of the Old Covenant. And then that he is superior to the priestly tabernacle sacrificial system, which was a type and shadow of what Christ would do, being a superior high priest who gave himself for one, once for all for our sins. And so with that in mind, we have the, uh, the exhortations that we should listen to him. Now in chapter 1, obviously as he has made it clear, the theme of this book, it's about Christ and him being superior and God has spoken through him. The author then, within chapter 1, uses seven Old Testament quotes to prove that Jesus has become much better than angels. Not that he wasn't beforehand, but he is now being seen and exalted where he truly is, having inherited a more excellent name than they. 
Specifically, the author proves that Jesus is the unique one and only Son of God, declared by the resurrection, as we see, demonstrating his deity, that he is the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords, and that he is ultimately thus far above the angels who are just ministering servants, those who are given to render a service to those who would inherit salvation. Then beginning in chapter 2, we have the first warning uh, that uh, since Christ is superior to angels, uh, his revelation superior to their revelation, which pointed to what he would do, pointed to the, the new covenant, we must pay closer attention lest we drift away from the tremendous salvation that is in Jesus Christ. There's a warning. If you're neglecting the things of Christ, watch out. If you're not maturing in the Word, watch out. As we'll see later on in the book of Hebrews, if you're not showing gratitude, forsaking fellowship, not seeking to love the body of Christ, not serving Him, watch out. Because maybe you aren't who you think you are. And God is gracious to use His Word to expose where our hearts are at concerning our relationship with Him because He's a good God. He wants us to see ourselves rightly. So that if we're not saved, we would be saved. And if we are saved, we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, Jesus being superior to angels, we come in the middle of that section. And that's what we're going to see today in our passage, which points to the incarnation, why Jesus took on human flesh. Hebrews chapter 2, and let's start in verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that thou rememberest him? Or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him a little while, thou hast made him a little while lower than angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, that is not subject to him. But we see him who has been made for a little while lower than angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering and death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things to, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one Father. For which reason he is not he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Now again, we're not going to look in depth in this entire passage, but we're going to look pretty closely at, uh, at verses uh, 5 through 9, and then a little bit in 10, and then finish up with a brief overview of the rest. So why Christmas? Why do we even celebrate Christmas? First of all, we're going to see that Christ came for our sin. He came because of our sin. And we have God's intention for man clearly relayed in the context of Scripture. Look again at verse 5. Look again at verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Notice our passage begins with this word for, which means there's an explanation here, signifying he's explaining something, and really so he's, he's really explaining something that he has just spoken of. Look back in uh, chapter 1, verse 13, and I want to read up through our portion here. Chapter 1, verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for, those, for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, he's speaking of the first covenant, that's the law that was brought to Israel, Proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense? Saying, if the first covenant was this way, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the, through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God bearing witness with them, 
both by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning what we are speaking. So here we have the reality of the context that angels are just ministering spirits, servants, messengers, for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. And thus a warning. Don't don't, uh, neglect what God has said through His Son, which is greater than the revelation, which was a shadow to bring about and foreshadow Christ. And so he said here, for he did not subject angels to the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Now the term world here is not cosmos, which speaks of the world or its system. It's not ionis, which speaks of the extents of uh, time and space. Uh, It's the world, oikomene, which is interesting. He did not subject the inhabited earth to come concerning which to angels concerning which we are speaking. He's saying God didn't put into subjection to angels the world to come. He's saying basically angels aren't going to be in charge. Angels aren't going to be in charge. And with that in mind, he reminds the reader at this point concerning what uh, man's original intent was. Very important, what man's original intent was. Let me see here, but verse 6. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that thou rememberest him? Or, what is, or the son of man that thou has, art concerned about him? Verse 7. Thou hast made him a little while lower than angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things into subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he has left nothing that is subject to him. Now at this point we have a quote from Psalm 8, which Bob read earlier. And Psalm 8, if you were paying attention, is a contrast between God's majesty demonstrated in creation and man. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is man in light of that? What is man in light of all that you have done? That's what that passage is talking about. Turn to Psalm 8. Turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, verse 1. For the choir director on the Gittith, the Psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth, who has displayed thy splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes thou hast established strength because of thine adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider thy heavens and the work of thy fingers and the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, when I consider creation, what you've done, he says, what is man that thou dost take thought of him and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him for a little while lower than God and thou dost crown him with glory and honor and majesty. Verse 6, thou dost make him rule over the works of thy hands Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the pass of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. And so in our passage, we have the quote here in verse 6. What is man that thou rememberest him, or the son of man that thou art concerned with him? And he says, thou hast made him a little while lower than angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. This is the same thing, and it's quoted in the book of Job. Job mentions this same portion here uh, in Job chapter 7, verse 7. What is man that thou dost magnify him, and that thou art concerned about him? What is it? Psalm 144, verse 3. O Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him? Psalm 144, verse 3. And thou dost, uh, son of man, that thou dost think of him. Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. In light of who you are, God, and what you have done, what is man? What is man? What is man? Well, what we're going to see, it's essential to our, to the gospel, to understand the gospel rightly, to understand what is man and who is man and where man is right now. 
You see, we must have a biblical understanding of mankind, his sinless origin and his subsequent fall before we can truly understand the gospel correctly. So we have here, and back in our passage, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6, But one has testified somewhere, we know it's in Psalm 8, saying, What is man that thou hast remembered him, or the son of man that thou art concerned with him? Now, the term son of man obviously uh, spoke of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this, this psalm is messianic. It does point to some realities of what the Messiah would do, but yet primarily it's pointing to mankind. And you see that in the parallelism. What is man? What is the son of man? And so with this in mind we see the focus is, who is man? Who is man that you would remember him? Look at the passage. Why would God remember or be concerned about man? You know, this term uh, in parallel, visit here, notice there's parallelism, or what, why is, what is man that thou remembers him, or the son of man that thou art concerned for him? I'm back in verse 6 of Hebrews, Hebrews 2. The term concerned here actually speaks of visiting. It's often translated visit. And it speaks of really literally going after and looking at someone who is sick. You know, when someone's sick, you go visit them. You're concerned about them, right? You go to help them. It's used also to speak of the Lord God coming and visiting us in salvation. Look at uh, Luke chapter 1. And this is when Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, prophesies Luke chapter 1 verse 67 so the question we're looking at what is man that you would visit him you would be concerned and visit him remember we're asking the question why Christmas Luke chapter 1 verse 67 and Zechariah his father was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has could translate it concern, but it doesn't make sense there. Visit makes much more sense. For he has visited us, and what? Accomplished redemption for his people. And he has raised up the horn of salvation in the house of David his servant. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his, to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that wonderful? Because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall, there's our word, visit us. To shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. What is man that you would visit him? And we're going to see in our passage in the context of salvation. Who is man that you would come to bring about salvation, that you would visit him? Look at uh, verse 7 back in Hebrews chapter 2. Thou hast made him for a little while lower than angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and appointed him over the works of thy hands. What is man that you would visit him, i.e. come to help him, that you're concerned about him, that you would save him? He says, first of all, the answer would be, he's your creation. Thou hast made him, right? Thou hast made him. Thou hast made him for a little while lower than angels. We were created in the image and likeness of God. And notice, we were made for a little while lower than angels. And if you think about angels, uh, that speaks of us right now being limited to the physical sphere. We are a little lower than angels, okay? Very interesting statement, very interesting truth. And what's interesting, if you think about this term, little while, it's pretty amazing. Because the implication is that wasn't the way God intended for us to be for all time. He has made us for a little while lower than angels. God's plan was always more for man than what we were initially created for. Quite an amazing thought. So what is man, O God, that you would visit him to come help him, to save him? First, he's your creation. But notice, secondly, from our passage, he is your creation who was to rule over that creation. Thou hast made him, verse 7, a little while lower than angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. What is man? Well, you, you made him a little while lower than angels. 
He's been crowned with glory and honor and been appointed over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things into subjection under his feet. That's who man is. That's who man is. We need to understand who man is and ultimately why we need salvation. He says man was crowned with glory and honor by virtue of his position having been created in God's image. Genesis chapter 1, crowned with glory and honor, destined to rule over the works of his hands. Look at the end of verse 7. And hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. God appointed mankind over his handiwork. That's his creation. And look at verse 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he has left nothing that is not subject to him. Everything was subject to to mankind. Who is man? What is man? He is your creation. He is the one who is to reign of your creation. Notice the parallelism we see as we see in Genesis chapter 1. Turn actually to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 and look at verse 26. This is in the portion of Genesis in which we have the overview of creation. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, very important, and let him what? Or let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. And God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every living thing that moves on the earth. Man was created to rule over God's creation. We see that. We see that man was... And he says, Thou hast, verse 8, back in our Hebrews passage, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Within a love relationship with the living God, man was originally created to glorify and honor him by ruling over his creation completely. But the reality is that's not what's happening right now. Look at our passage again, verse 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him he has left nothing that is subject to him. But now, but now we do not yet see all things subject to him. Very interesting statement. But now, the NIV says, yet at present. Here's the reality check, end of verse 8. But now we do not see, yet see all things subject to him. We do not see man reigning as God's vice regent over creation. But what do we see reigning instead? What is reigning in mankind? What we see reigning is sin. Turn to uh, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death reigned through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned you see all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god and the wages of sin is death and then notice in verse 17 romans chapter 5 for if by the transgression of the one that's adam death reigned through the one look at verse 18 so then as through the trans one transgression resulted in the condemnation to all men verse 19 for as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners then look at verse 21, that as sin reigned in death. Sin reigned in death. The reality is that sin is reigning over us now. Sin is reigning over us. Man is not who he was created to be. Mankind is not in the position that he should be in. One pastor writes, his crown is rolled in the dust, his honor is tarnished and stained, his sovereignty is strongly disputed among the lower orders of creation. If trees nourish him, after, it's after strenuous care, they often disappoint. If the earth supplies with him food, its tardy response is 
to the exhausting, it's a tardy response to the exhausting toil. If the beasts serve them, it's because they've been laboriously tamed and trained while vast numbers roam the forest glades, setting him at defiance. If he catches a fish of the sea or the bird of the air, he must wait long in cunning concealment. So degraded has become, he has become, he has bowed before the objects he was to command. And he says, where is the supremacy of man? Another pastor writes, whatever else is or is not true is one thing is for certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. You look at mankind in general because of sin. We're corrupt. We're sinful. We're ruled by sin and death. And if you haven't repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are being ruled by sin and death. So what's the reason for the incarnation? What's the reason for Christmas? Why did Jesus come? Well, we're going to see he came because man is not where he should be, because man fell. It's because of our sin. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Man is not in his proper place. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yet look in our passage. God is gracious. God is gracious. And what is his plan to stop this reign of death? Notice he says here, but we do, verse 9, see him who has been made a little while lower than angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, we don't see man in his proper place, but we do see Jesus. And we see him in the context of dying for our sins. You see, things are not the way they're supposed to be. Man is not where he is and she is supposed to be. But in contrast, in verse 9, we do see him who has been made a little while lower than angels, namely Jesus. Now, what's very interesting is there's two different words used in these two verses for see. First of all, we don't see man reigning. The word uh, orao just speaks of uh, uh, basically, you know, noticing, observing. When I look at the world, man is not reigning rightly as God's vice regent. He is not submitting to God and reigning over his creation. That's not happening. I look at that. That's what I see. But we do see Jesus. It's a different word, Greek word blepo. It speaks of the perception or it emphasizes the perception of the one looking. Often it's translated, behold, take a look at this. Perceive what's going on. We don't see man reigning, but we recognize and we see Jesus. We see Jesus. Tremendous contrast. We see Jesus. We behold him. But we do not see him who is made, but we do see, excuse me, him who is made, verse 9, a little, for a little while lower than angels, namely Jesus. Tremendous statement. God the Son, uh, the eternal God of the universe, became lower than the angels, like we are. He became a man. He became a man. It says he was made for a little while lower than angels. 33 years lower than angels. What humility. God became a baby and grew up. Tremendous reality. 2,000 years ago, God the Son did the most amazing thing. Let me share some passages. We see in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, a little farther down, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. God took on human flesh. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God took on human flesh. Tremendous reality. Philippians chapter 2, have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the, the name that is above every name. Now, the incarnation is a tremendous reality that we see in Scripture. 
And God the Son, before He took on human flesh, was fully God. And He expressed it fully. And during the incarnation, when Jesus took on human flesh, although He was fully God, He became fully man. Fully man. He didn't become a new person uh, when He was born into this world. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and yes, forever. Hebrews 13.8. During and after the incarnation, Jesus Christ was one person of the, of the Trinity, God the Son, with two distinct natures. What do I mean by that? He had a divine and human nature working in perfect harmony, fully God and fully man. As God, he sustained the world. As man, he was able to suffer death on our behalf. As God, he existed for all eternity. As man, he entered into the realm of time and human suffering, being sinless, but yet entering into this world of sin. As God, he was able to give infinite value to his work. As man, he was able to represent man before the justice of God as he bore our sins on the cross. Like each and every one of us, he was born from a woman. He likewise partook of the same. We have this true account in the Gospel of Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 2. When you think about it, what is man that thou would visit him? What is man that thou would be concerned about him? Tremendous question. We don't see man reigning, but we see with the eyes of perception, we behold Jesus Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. That was the first census taken while Quinarius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the, from a city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over by their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you. Born for you. Jesus came and took on human flesh for us. Born for you. And notice what he says. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace among men with whom he is pleased. Tremendous reality. God took on human flesh. He took on human flesh. He was made for a little while lower than angels. He was made like us, yet without sin. And he says we do see him, and notice in verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 2, namely, he says, if you don't know who he's talking about, he says it right here, namely, Jesus. And most of you are familiar that the term Jesus, or Yeshua, it speaks, it's, it's, a, it's a name that speaks of the term Yahweh or the Lord of the Old Testament. Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. He is the Lord. The Lord is salvation. So what do we behold? We behold Jesus, but what did he do? Look at our passage. Verse 9. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than angels. That's namely Jesus. And notice what we see. This is what we do see. Man isn't reigning, sin is reigning, but we see and perceive Jesus. Because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Tremendous statement. Right away, the author of Hebrews connects the death of Christ with his incarnation, taking on human flesh. 
We see Jesus who died and was glorified and honored. That's who we see. That's what we see. And this is sometimes where we get hung up. We see the incarnation simply or Christmas simply as a babe in a manger. And that is true. But we need to recognize for today was born for you a Savior. He came to save us from our sins. Jesus came to die. He would share that uh, to his disciples many times. Matthew 20, 28, just, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but came to give his life as a ransom for many. Acts 2.23, this man delivered up, Peter says to the Jews, by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of God's men and put him to death, and God raised him up, again putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Jesus came to die for our sins. Christmas is not simply about presents and stuff. It's not that at all. It's about the greatest gift ever given. God gave his only son for us. He came, he took on a human flesh. I want to ask you, do you associate the cross with the manger? Do you think of Jesus' coming in light of why he came? He came to die for our sins. You see, man is sinful. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We are all wretched sinners. We are in all, all in need of a Savior. And God declares to all men everywhere that they should repent. Because he's going to judge. His wrath is going to come upon sin and sinners. But he sent his son to save us from his just and righteous wrath. To bring forgiveness of sins. And how did he do that? He died in our place. Look at our passage at the end of uh, verse 9. That by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Very interesting. By the grace of God. You see, Jesus functioned completely relying on the Father. He, he, he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. He took on human flesh and he was, became obedient to the point of death. And it's by God's grace he offered himself up to us. It's by his grace. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all in Titus 2.10. And so what we see here is that we see man, we observe man not where he's supposed to be. Man is sinful, man and woman. But in contrast, we see and we perceive Jesus who came and died for our sins. Suffering and death, crowned with glory and honor, exalted that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, when you think of this term taste, you know, we think of tasting something like a little sip. You know, you're at Costco, whatever, you take a little sip of something. It's not what it's talking about. The term taste is a Hebrew idiom. It spoke of entering into the full experience. He completely died for our sins. We see that. We see that. And you ask, what is death? What is the death that he would taste for everyone? What did he taste for us? Well, we know that he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And we know that while he was suffering, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was separated from God the Father because he was bearing our sins. He tasted death. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He experienced it to its fullest. He went into the grave and he rose on the third day. You see, the wages of sin is death. If you die in your sins, you will experience, obviously, physical death, obviously, but you're going to experience the second death, which is punishment forever. But Jesus Christ paid the price in our place. He did it for us. He did it for us. Now, some get into all kinds of theological gymnastics, whether his death is sufficient for everyone or not, or whatever it might be. The reality is, his death, as we see, will only apply to those who trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There are those who will reject that and they will go to hell. But his death is sufficient for everyone. And the offer is genuine to everyone we see in so many passages that uh, for God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We see in our passage that he might taste death for everyone. We see in the first John chapter 2 that he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours but for those of the whole world. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4, 
God who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We see in 1 Timothy 4.10 that God is the one we fix our hope on, the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. He's the Savior for everyone. There is only one Savior. It's Jesus Christ. We see in 2 Peter chapter 3 that he is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We see in Ezekiel chapter 18 that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather they would turn or repent and live. Yes, Jesus ultimately will only justify the many, Isaiah 53. He will, and, and the free gift will only abound to the many. What Christ did on the cross will ultimately only apply to those who trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But the offer is available to everyone. God is a gracious God. Does God take any pleasure in any sinner who dies in their sins? Absolutely not. Rather, they would turn and live. Return and live. So back to our passage, verse verse 9. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than angels, namely Jesus, because of suffering and death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everything. You see, Jesus Christ, because he did the Father's will and died for us and rose from the dead, was crowned with glory and honor. He was exalted to God's right hand that by the grace of God he might take taste death for everyone. He died in our place. You can't do anything to take care of your sin problem. God did it instead. Let me share some verses. Look down a little farther, Hebrews 2.17. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He had to become human. That's what he's saying. That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make, notice this word, propitiation for the forgiveness of sins. The word means satisfaction. To satisfy God in relationship with sins. First John 2, 2, For he himself is a propitiation for our sins, but not only ours, for those of the whole world. First John 4, 10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Who is man that he would be concerned about us? that he would visit us. And God has visited us. God has taken on human flesh and he has died for our sins and risen from the dead. One last passage I want to share here. Look at uh, Isaiah 53 for a moment. Isaiah 53. And I'm not going to read the whole passage, but it's a wonderful passage. I'm going to read just verse... Verses 5 through 6. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening or punishment for our well-being, our shalom, our peace, fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God sent his son and he died in our place. And if you're willing to turn to Jesus Christ, to look to him and call upon him for salvation, he'll save you from your sins. But you've got to acknowledge you're sinful. You've got to acknowledge your sin before him and turn to the only savior, Jesus Christ. He came to die in your place. He came to defeat death through death. You see, that through death, that through through his suffering, by the grace of God, he may taste death for everyone. With that in mind, let's take a look at the last uh, four verses here. We'll just skim these and not have time to to go through them completely, but I want to just bring it together and show you verse 10. For it was fitting for him... For whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim thy name 
my name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing thy praise, and again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Tremendous portion. Not enough time to go through it, but I encourage you to, to meditate on it later and look at it. But notice this is an explanation, verse 10, 4. It was fitting for him. Well, what have we seen so far? That man was not in the place that man is not in the place that he was created to be. Instead of reigning and ruling over creation, we see that sin and death is reigning over man. But what we do see is Jesus, who has been made like us and crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death for us, and by his grace he tasted death for each and every one of us. He died in our place. For it was fitting. For it was fitting. The term fitting speaks of being right, speaks of being proper. It was proper or right for him to, to bring about, and there's a lot of different words here that need to be looked at, but I'll just mention it. It was right for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things. Everything is by God and for God, and since it's all his and it's all for him, it was fitting for him to bring about our salvation. It was fitting for him to come and do this. And he says here, specifically, bringing many sons to glory, to perfect. And that word doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't perfect. He was perfect. But the word speaks of completion. To bring to completion. That's what that word means. To bring to consummation, a completion, to make complete. It was fitting for him, for whom, that's the Father, for whom all things and through all things were made and are in a... Are, through all him are all things in bringing many sons to glory. Those are those who are saved to perfect or complete the author, or the term author is an interesting word, speaks of the, a trailblazer of their salvation through suffering. So, so what am I talking about here? It was the right thing for Jesus to suffer and die to bring about our salvation. It is only through the successful suffering and death of Jesus Christ that we are saved. He is the only one who defeated death, and because he is God and sinless, he could not be held by death. And thus, only through his death can we safely be brought to glory. It was the right fitting thing for God the Father to have his son die for our sins. That's what he's saying. It was the right thing. It was the proper thing. Without Christ alone to pioneer the way, to lead us to glory, no one would be saved. Because none of us are sinless. Only Christ was sinless. He pioneered the way. It is proper and fitting for him to accomplish our salvation. You know, one pastor writes basically, I'm just going to paraphrase I praise God. God didn't just send a Bible down and say, figure it out. He sent his son. He took on human flesh. And yes, the word does reveal his son, but he sent his son. He sent his son. And notice verse 11. For both he who sanctifies, sanctified means being set apart, being set apart from sin unto God, it's salvation, and those who are sanctified, for both the one who does the saving and the ones who are saved are from one father. God saved us by becoming a man. Tremendous reality. And then he quotes Psalm 22, verse 22, uh, verse 12. I will, he is not ashamed to call them brethren in the end of verse uh, 11, then 12. I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, the children whom God has given me. The humility of God to take on human flesh to, to, to be obedient to the point of death, to become like us. What is man that thou art concerned about him? What is man? Man is your creation, but man is not functioning rightly. Man is in sin. And yet God visited us. He sent his son. And we behold that. Whether you've accepted the reality of Christ or not, it's the reality, and we can see it. He came to die for our sins. That's what Christmas is about. God taking on human flesh to die for us. God the Son became like us. He suffered and died, perfecting our salvation, bringing us 
and setting us apart to glory. And Christ is not ashamed to call his brethren, we the children who have been given to him. Tremendous reality. Christmas points to the fact that God died for our sins. That because of our fall and sin, God did the right thing and he sent his son to die for us. If you ever think it's not fair that we were born into sin, that we're sinful, that we're not functioning the way God wants us to function, don't forget God did the right thing. He gave his son to die for us. So why Christmas? Why did God take on human flesh? Why did he taste death for everyone? Why did he bear our sins in his body on the cross? Because we're sinful and we need a Savior. For today is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anyone here who is not saved. Lord, I thank you that you have revealed in your word the Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. I pray that you would break through the hardness of heart and you would cause them to see their sinfulness and their need for salvation. They would repent. They would acknowledge their sin before you and turn to your son Jesus, believing he died for their sins and rose from the dead. And they would call out personally to Jesus Christ, Lord, save me. And Lord, I thank you that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I pray people will do so, Lord, if they don't know you. And Lord, for those of us who know you, it's so easy to get distracted during this time, which we we know what it's about, but yet we forget on a practical basis that why we celebrate Christmas is because your son came to die for our sins. Help us be ready to share that with those around us. Help us be ready to speak the good news as you lead us. And may we praise you and thank you for who you are and what you've done in your son Jesus. And it's in his name we pray.